But it is so very, very great to be with you. We are starting a new series called Good, Good Father. And I feel like God just manifested some of that today. It's something about the goodness of God that transforms your life. I remember the, the day I made a decision to believe that God was good. You think that is just an automatic thing, but I remember the day. I were, we were just leaving for Namibia, and I chose in my heart to say, from now on, no matter what happens, I am going to believe that God is good. Therefore, no matter what difficulty faces me, I am going to choose be to believe that that thing in front of me, that hardship and that difficulty, is going to actually turn around and bless me. And I remember when I... When I took hold of that truth, how my life was transformed. I want to be honest with you. It didn't reduce the amounts of hardships and challenges I faces, faced, but it, it changed forever the outcome of those challenges. It changed forever the way I faced those challenges. It changed forever who I was in relation to my life. And I, I really, I'm trusting that as we go through the series, there will be this radical transformation in your heart, that your heart will come to rest in the knowledge that you have a dad who is powerful, amazing, strong, on your side, righteous, just, true. Amen. So Father, as we go into the series, I'm just praying that everyone here would get a revelation of you. Lord God, it's, I'm asking for more than just a sermon. Lord God, I'm asking that your, your power would, would hit them. Your, the knowledge of you would transform them. I want to pray that uh, the concept of who you are would overtake and overpower every false concept that has been contained in their minds. Lord God, I pray the strongholds of doubt and unbelief would be destroyed. Father God, I pray fear and anxiety would flee. I pray strength and comfort and confidence would come to them, Lord God. Righteousness, wholeness, completeness would come to them, Lord. Thank you, Father. We trust you for this. And all of God's people said, amen, amen and amen. So, uh, I grew up with a really great dad. No, I did. I grew up with a great dad. He... He was there when he needed to be there. Sometimes when I was being naughty, he was there more than I wanted him to be. <laughs> he was fun where he needed to be fun. He was strict where he needed to be strict. He was just really an amazing dad. But I know that's not true of everyone. I know that some people have grown up with no father. I know that some people have grown up with dads that they think it would be better if I didn't have a father. And I'm sure that's not your father. But, but everyone has a different experience of, of what father means to them. And yet when Jesus came, one of his primary, primary objectives was to reveal the father. You know, his disciples came to him and said, teach us to pray. And shockingly, shockingly, he started like this, our Father who is in heaven. You know, in the Old Testament, God was, was called a father from time to time. Not often, but he was called a father. But no one, no one, not one time 
addressed him directly as father. So I can imagine when Jesus said to his disciples, pray like this, our father. I'm, I'm sure there was like stunned silence. I'm sure for that moment, people just were like, what? Is God that close? Is God that available? Is God that real? Is God that, God that relational? Does God care that much? You know, fathers are always invested in how well their children do. I bet they were asking, Does, is God invested in my success? Does it matter to God? And, and the shock that hit them, wow, God is just something I didn't imagine him to be. Jesus took it a step further. He didn't just call God Father. From time to time, he actually called him Abba, which was Daddy God, Daddy. Now, th this isn't just, you know, a distant authority figure. This, this is the man that you run to and jump into his arms. This is the man you sit on his lap and he, he's tells you jokes and cuddles you. This is the man who feeds you ice cream when your mom says no. <laughs> you know, the, this, this is the man who takes you on adventures. This is the man you can rely on. This is the man that when you, when you have your first day at school, you're holding his hand and you can feel his strength next to you. And, and every, although everything around you looks chaotic and strange and new, you feel his presence next to you and you know it's going to be okay. The, this is how Jesus related to God. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus took it one step further. One day talking to his disciples, he said this, if you really knew me, you would know my father. I'm pausing because I want you to really get this. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now Jesus shocked people regularly. At that moment, if the disciples thought they were shocked with the Our Father prayer, at that moment, they were flawed. Because Jesus was saying to them, this great Father that I have been revealing to you, here he is standing before you. He was saying this, this intimate God has stepped down of he, out of heaven to be with you. The Bible calls him the exact representation, the radiance of God's glory. In other words, the manifestation of God's glory. All of that daddy godness that God holds was manifested in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And that means we can follow through the Bible and see how Jesus reacted to people. And we can know our daddy God. 
And one of the reasons I certainly read my Bible and read the exploits of Jesus and what he said and what he did is because as I read his interactions with people, I'm feeling a dad interacting with me. And so what I want to do today is to show you one of those giant, earth-shattering change moments that Jesus had with someone. And I want to show you the heart of your father for you. So today, today we're going to look at, so each of these sermons, we're going to look at different aspects of the father heart of God. And today I want to look at God's justice and compassion. Now you might say justice and compassion, they sound like two opposite things. And in reality, they are kind of two opposite things. But the beauty of God is that, that he has the whole of uh, the, the range of truth in him. And he is holy and he is loving. He is merciful and he is true. And the beauty of Jesus is that he came and manifested God's justice and compassion at the same time. And he married God's desire to be kind and loving to you with God's desire that things would be right and in their place. And as we see Jesus interacting with people, what we do is we see the wisdom and the majesty and the power and the love and the glory and yet the intimacy and grace and mercy of God manifested to mankind. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John 8 and we're going to start reading there. A really fascinating story. Jesus is interacting with a woman who's been caught in adultery some of your Bibles may not have this passage in there. This passage was, is an interesting passage in that it was added to the book of John a little bit after John was written. But scholars and theologians are very clear that this is an accurate account of what happened to Jesus. And people reading the book of John came and said, well, you know what you left out? You left out that fantastic story of Jesus interacting with that woman. So a little bit afterwards, they added it in to the document. But let's start reading from verse 2. It says, At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life 
of sin. The big mystery of this story is what on earth was Jesus writing in the sand? (laughs) Clearly, it was something that made those men feel uncomfortable. I like to think, I've heard many people say this, and I like it. I think he was sitting there and just doodling the names of the ungodly relationships that they had entered into. I feel like he was sitting there doodling the lies that they had told. I think he was doodling the extra money that they had taken unlawfully. I, you know, I think he was just, you know, ju- just, you know, just happened to like write the name of that lady they went to visit last week. And I think the man, men standing there with those stones, you know, each time a new little word was written in the sand, you know, their hearts were like, oh, my word. I don't get to throw a stone. But whatever it is, we don't know for sure. It'll be a mystery. It's one of those questions I will ask Jesus when, when I get there. There are a few others. <laughs> like, why am I only five foot three? I'm going to ask him that. <laughs> But there's some words that just really caught my attention. And the first word is caught. Caught really caught my attention. And what I was thinking as I read through this passage a number of times is, you know, they talk about this woman being caught in adultery. And what they mean is she she was discovered. The big question is, when you catch someone in adultery, there are always two people there. Minimum. You understand? (laughs) So my question remains, why is there just a woman being brought? But anyway, the Bible talks about her being discovered in her sin. And I can imagine as she was brought before Jesus, the humiliation she was feeling was probably off the charts. I mean, to be caught in the act of adultery, you know what, that's some things you don't want the public to see. You understand, there's, you know, it's, it's not the stuff you want broadcast all over the place. But here she is standing before Jesus, alone, ashamed, crowds around, judging, laughing. But as I pondered this, I also thought about this. You know, she wasn't the only one who was caught. As Jesus was doodling in the sand, every single one of those men standing around were caught too. And although they meant to trap Jesus, they stood or stepped firmly into God's, I I don't know if it was a trap, into God's loving hands that were able to reveal to them who they really were. And as they all stood around, every single one except for Jesus was caught. And the outcome of the story is really great for this woman. Really, really great but not so great for those men. And, and here's the thing I think about, is what would have happened? What would have happened 
when they suddenly realized their sinfulness was exposed, suppose what would have happened if instead of slinking away, they had come and stood next to that woman, kneeled before Jesus and said, Lord, I'm a sinner, forgive me. I want to ask you, what would the difference have been? It would have been victory day for that woman and victory day for those men. And I think, I think part of God's mercy is to catch us in our sin. Because although we think it's hidden, it's open and laid bare to God, and it's killing us. The most loving thing God could do for you is to rock up when you're, having, when you're engaged in sin and say, hello, I caught you. Let's talk. Not you. I know not you. This, this person here. You know, one thing I used to pray when my children were growing up, when they're going through their teenagers year, teenage years, I said, Lord, don't let them get away with anything. Lord, whenever they break the rules, go astray, Lord, would they be caught? And the reason is, is you know what? The more we get away with it, we, the more we think it's okay. The more we can justify and tell ourselves that, the, that this is actually good for us. And the most loving thing that can happen for you is that you get caught. My, my daughter told me the other day, she said, Mom, it was terrible in being one of your teenagers. Mom, you know what? Every time I did something wrong, I knew without a shadow of doubt my phone was going to ring and it was going to be you. And I would just be on my way to do it and the phone would ring and I'd pick it up and you would say, Care? I just was thinking about you. What's happening? <laughs> it's so great. God's so good at this stuff. You know what I'm saying? So good at it. Some of the things she did anyway, but nonetheless, that's another story. That's her test me. She'll tell you about that. But how good is God? To not leave us in our deception, but to reach out and say, no. You're my son. You're my daughter. I'm not going to allow that thing to kill you. It's like my, my dad rocking up just as I sneak down to the kitchen when the, when the house was quiet to get that extra pudding that was left over there. And there was my dad. Hi, Care. What are you doing? Ah. <laughs> uh, I just was checking everything's okay here, Dad. <laughs> it's fine. You can go to bed. It's all, all clear. All clear. But God's that loving. You know, there was another man in the Bible who got caught. His name was David, and he did a lot more than stealing pudding from the fridge, as most of us have. But he, he fell in love with a woman that he wasn't married to. She was married to his best friend, a very good friend of his. And he went and slept with her, and then to cover up his sin, he had his friend killed. <laughs> Gosh. Gosh. And then she was pregnant. He brought her into his house. And guess what? The prophet came knocking on the door because he had a dad in heaven who said, you're my son. And I'm not letting you get away with this. Because there is more for you than this. I don't want you trapped in this forever. 
and his sin was revealed, and unfortunately the child died. But what I love about the life of David is that later in the book of Acts, he's described as a man after God's heart. And what this means to me is that, that our sin and our mistake is never the end of the story in our relationship with God. Never. Never. Is that that's not what defines us. It's what we do when we caught that defines us. Because David did something fantastic. He fell on his knees and he said, God, it's true. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Change me. Holy Spirit, don't leave me. Help me. Here is what he wrote in Psalm 51. At that time, he said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. We always have a choice to protect ourselves and to hide what's going on like those men with the stones who just slunk away into the shadows to pretend it didn't happen, to self-preserve, or we have the choice to fall on our faces before the living God and saying, it's true, I need you. Daddy God, thank you for catching me. Set me free. And your, my, our self-preservation will never accomplish what his mercy can. Caught can also mean something else. It can mean entangled. Caught in a trap. And one of the things I know about sin, first-hand experience, unlike all of you I know who have no first-hand experience of this, that sin is a trap that once it grabs you, it just keeps winding its tentacles around you. And at first it seems, oh, I can just do this and then I can choose not to do it later. And the problem is the more you do it, the easier it is to do it. And suddenly you're just doing it and suddenly you can't stop doing it. Hebrews describes it like this in Hebrews 12 verse 1. It, it talks about the people who have gone before us who have who have triumphed and lived in faith with God. And it says, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. In other words, just throw off that stuff because it's gonna grab you and it's gonna hold you and it's gonna keep you and it's gonna stop you from being who God made you to be. I don't know how many of you know about cuckoos, the bird cuckoos, not the crazy cuckoo, <laughs> the bird, the cuckoo. So what the cuckoo does is that it actually comes and doesn't build a nest, but it finds another little sweet bird who's laid, built a, spent hours and days building a beautiful nest and laid its eggs there, and it comes along and lays its egg in the nest. There you see the cuckoo's egg, it's the big one. And it lays its egg in the nest, and then it goes away and lives its life, completely free from all parenting duties. And this little cuckoo 
hatches out, and he is much bigger than the other birds in the nest. And once he's hatched out, this, this mommy bird comes and feeds, feeds the cuckoo. And the cuckoo slowly but surely, as it gets stronger, literally pushes the other little birds out the nest. I know, I know. And all that is left is this giant cuckoo sitting in this nest. If you've ever seen like a nearly mature cuckoo sitting in the nest, it takes over the whole nest. And this tiny little mother bird, half its size, is sitting perched on it, just like feeding it nonstop as it eats. And I thought about it. You know, this is such a picture of what sin does. First of all, the devil comes to the beautiful nest of your life. And in that nest, he lays a lie. Just a small lie. It looks like all your other thoughts. It's very close. And he invites you to take it in. He pre presents a lie to you as truth and invites you to have it as your own. Something like, you can't do without that. No one will ever know. It's just once. Come on, God's holding out of you. It's really great. You need this. You deserve this. And you think, oh gosh, it's, look, it fits so well in my nest. It must be mine. And you sit on it and you nurture it. And it hatches. And then it starts making the nest its own. It starts training your emotions. It starts influencing you. So eventually you can only find pleasure in that place. It starts training your heart to believe that lie. It starts molding your world to facilitate it. And then, last of all, it becomes so big and so large that it takes over your will. And suddenly, you feel like you have no more choice. And now, you're trapped. And once it's got to that stage, to boot out that cuckoo from the nest is quite a job, you know. Of course it can be done, Jesus can do it in an instant, but I want to propose to you when it first lays that egg, that's the time to say no. That's the time to boot out that egg and say, that's not coming into my nest. Because though it looks innocent and mild at that time, it's going to grow into something. What I love about Jesus that he's so good at telling cuckoo eggs from ordinary eggs. And so that if we walk with him, our heavenly father helps us discern our thoughts, helps us discern what's true and right, and helps us to say no to those lies and, and keep our minds focused. And if we understand the goodness of God, it's so easy to reject those lies because we understand that, that any good thing that I am going to have in my life will come from following my Father and from rejecting all these other things. 
the next word that really strikes me is they wanted to stone her. And really, this was a, a form of Old Testament judgment and justice. And, and really, although it sounds barbaric, why it was a, a relatively good form of execution in there is that the, the accuser had to throw the stones. What that meant is that you had to see the consequences of your accusation. I don't know how you feel, but that's pretty hard. So people were very circumspect in bringing judgments against people because they knew they would have to carry the consequences. So in actual fact, stoning was very rare. Just the, the terror of having to execute that judgment made people rather reconcile and work it out beforehand. So though it sounds barbaric, actually it was God's way of saying, if you're going to bring an accusation, you better make sure there's no accusation in your heart because you're the one who's going to have to throw that stone. And in actual fact, it, yeah, like I said, there's no recorded incident of it ever happening in Jewish history. Maybe it did, but it wasn't recorded. In the Old Testament, I mean. In the New Testament, we have some examples. <laughs> But there's something about God that we, we often forget. And that is that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Love and faithfulness go before him. That he's a loving and kind God, but he's also a just God. That things matter to him. Whether things are right or, or wrong actually matter to him. In the in the Bible, the word for righteousness and justice are based on a, a single word. So they're actually derivatives of each other. Righteousness and justice are kind of concepts that are interchangeable. And justice, there are three kinds of justice that the Bible talks about. It talks about a justice, retributive justice. And what that means is punishment for what you've done wrong. And although that sounds harsh and terrible, here's, here's something I want to put before you. As a mom... If my two sons come to me and the one son says, David, he says, Joshua, hit me. If I turn to Joshua and I say, oh, don't worry, Josh, I forgive you. And then I just walk away. I, I can see all of your eyebrows raised. You're like, that's really bad parenting. Why? Because it's unjust. We all have an innate sense of justice. We all know when things are wrong, and, and it irks us. Why? Because we are created in the image of God, and, and things being right matter to God. In essence, if I said, oh, Joshua, I forgive you, what am I saying to David? I'm saying that Joshua matters more to me than David, that Joshua is more important to me than David. And that's not right, and it's not true. God has no favorites, and therefore, he can't just come and forgive your sin. No, really, he can't forgive your sin because then what's it saying about the people you've hurt? What's it saying to them? I can hear silence in the room. I mean, you're all going, oh, my word, I'm in trouble. Yes, without Jesus, we were really, really in trouble. That's the point. He said God's love compelled him to want to be with us, but his justice demanded 
let a price be paid for our sin. And that justice was Jesus. Our Heavenly Father stepped onto earth and said, I want to forgive you, therefore, I will take the punishment for your sin so that I can issue a blanket forgiveness to mankind and say, come to me and be changed. There's also restorative justice, and this is to put things back in their place because Jesus didn't just die on the cross. He was resurrected again, and in being resurrected, he said to the devil, I get my world back. And what's he doing? He's putting everything back into place. And that's restorative justice is that God doesn't just want things punished that were wrong. He wants things put back right. He wants wholeness, health, life, blessing in families, in schools, in cities, in nations. He wants things, life, communities producing life. And then there's distributive justice. I know these are big words. You'll never have to use them in casual conversation. Don't worry. And what is that? Is that he wants things set right and the knowledge of things in their right place to continue to grow across the earth. And that's the commission he's given you and me. As you have been set right, Take the power and the glory and the knowledge of who I am and set the world right around you. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says this, But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds are we, we are healed. He stood and he said, I'll take it. It's mine. And in essence, when he was sitting in front of that woman and they brought her before him, he realized justice can only be meted out by someone who is free from the sin. Because otherwise, they deserve it as well as the other. So he's saying, well, look, guys, whoever has no sin, you throw the stone. Who was the only one who had the right to throw the stone in that scenario? Jesus. And what did he say? Neither do I condemn you. And you know, at the same time, what he was saying, he was just saying, don't worry, I'm going to hang on that stone and the stone's coming. To, I'm going to hang on that cross and that stone's coming to me. I'll take it. I got this one. The last thing he said to her was, go and leave your sin. That word go you know, it sounds like kind of formal word, but we can't see his expression. I'm sure he was looking loving in her eyes and he was saying, go, leave your sin. I'm sure there was love and acceptance radiating from his face at that moment. But what I love about that is that it's so empowering. He wasn't treating her like a victim, like, oh, you poor thing, you were caught. Are you shame? He wasn't treating her as a shameful person. He wasn't saying, gosh, you just better go and hide for a year. Go, go and live in another country till everyone's forgotten about it. He was treating her as a powerful person. He was saying, no, no. You can do this. 
And here's what I love about it is that God's words are creative. When he said, go, leave your life of sin, what was it producing in her? The ability, the very ability to do that thing. What's he doing? In that moment, he's shattering the lies that got her there in the first place. In that moment, he's speaking to her of an identity that's so different. He's saying to her, you, not, you, you, don't, you don't need men's approval to feel good about yourself. You don't need these men to make you feel whole and healthy. You don't need this kind of lifestyle. Go, you're a powerful person. Live in the victory and the identity of who you are in me. Hebrews 4 says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. As he stood before her, he was saying, I know what you're facing. I felt it. I understand the pressure. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let, it, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We, need. we understand mercy. That's God saying, I forgive you. Great, lovely. But there's another part that comes from his presence, and that's grace. And this is that, what he did then. Grace is his empowering presence entering in you to allow you to do what you could not do before. It was Jesus saying, I am going to walk with you. I'm going to be in you. I'm going to empower you to be different, to be whole, to be true, to be filled with truth instead of the lies that have driven you here. No one leaves an encounter with Jesus as a helpless victim. Everyone leaves as an empowered emissary. He told us a similar command. He said, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. What's he saying? You're not a helpless victim of your circumstances. You're not this poor, sinful worm. You are a son and a daughter of the most high God. You carry a message that is powerful. You carry an example of my redeeming grace. Go now and tell the people that my kingdom is here. There's a new reality. There's a new way of living. There is a new truth here. He told her to go and leave her life of sin. And in conclusion, I want to say this. In essence, he was saying things like this to her. Go. Put your computer in a public place. Change your relationships that are pulling you down. Make new decisions about how you do your work. Change your environment. Change your way of doing things to represent what I have done inside of you. Because we know what sin does. It creates us ruts and furrows, habits, ways of living. And if we get changed by Jesus, but we go back to the same environment with those ruts and furrows, the water is just going to flow down those channels that we have created. So when we go back, he's saying, go create new channels of my grace. Change your environment to represent what's going on in your heart. Go to different parties. Be with different people. Don't make those phone calls change what you do with your recreation time. Amen.
So in conclusion, because God is a good, good father, we are forgiven and therefore we can go and live out our destiny. God is with us. Can we give the Lord a hand? As we close, I don't know where you are in the story, whether you're that woman caught out front or you're those, those men caught as Jesus doodles in the sand. Or perhaps you can remember it from the past or, you know, perhaps you're not even caught in sin. Perhaps you just, there's some painful part of your heart that, that God is putting his finger on right now. And I feel like God wants to come and set you free. I feel like Jesus wants to sit in front of you and say, you're not that person that doesn't define you. This is who you are. And I've come to set you free. And I've come to make you into a powerful person, into a person who has a life and a destiny and who can walk into it and doesn't have to be continuously plagued by the guilt or the fear or the shame of this thing. And so I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. It's where you are, if you could just close your eyes. And I want you to picture that, that incident, all those incidents. And then I'm going to ask you, at the same time, picture Jesus standing there next to you. Like I said, it's almost like you're forcing yourself to be caught. And this is the most loving thing God could do for you. So right now, I want, I want you to just see Jesus there with you, right in the midst of that. I want you to note something about Jesus. I'm going to pray something first. You just hang on. Lord, I just take authority right now over, over every demonic spirit associated with anyone in this room and I command you to go. I say you will not manifest in any way nor will you cause them not to see the truth of Jesus. So what I want you to do right now is I want you to look at that Jesus standing there. Some of you will see a physical representation of him. Some of you will just see or just sense him there. So you won't even really see anything. You'll just know he's there. Some of you may hear something. All of these are just valid ways of experiencing Jesus. And I want you to just sit there and allow him to be in that situation with you. And then I want you to look or notice what he feels about you in that moment. There's something that will be very clear to you. He's not angry. I want you to see that. He's not angry. The next thing I want you to note, he, he doesn't think you're shameful. He's not despising you. I want you to see the, the joy and the, and the eagerness with which he is standing there. And then I want you to ask him something. I want you to say, God, what do you say? What do you say? Some of you again will hear some things. Some of you, he may, you may just see him do things. Some of you might just feel things in your heart. Some of you might feel a sensation coming upon you and just ask yourself, what is this telling me? 
you will hear things like this. I forgive you. It's okay. I'm here. I've set you free. Things like it's not going to happen again. I'll help you. You're mine. I love you. And as you're hearing those things, part of those eggs being pushed out of the nest is that you actually believe those. You let God lay His truth in your heart. And you nurture it and you allow it to grow and come into full bloom. You allow those truths to take over and become the guiding force by which you live. You are loved. You belong. You are redeemed. You are chosen. You have a destiny. His power is with you. You are whole. You are loved. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. When you're ready, you can open your eyes and look at me. If God is still doing something with you, you just stay there. I'd rather you had a conversation with Him than with me. So Father, I just want to pray for everyone here that Your power and Your, your grace and Your might and Your compassion and Your justice would be true for them, Lord God. Father God, we would be the kind of people that would stand in the fullness of what You've done for us, the forgiveness. We would receive the work on, your, on the cross that means that justice has been paid, that we are free, that we can stand fully as ones empowered by your spirit and we can go into the world and we can bring the justice that you desire. We can bring the wholeness, the redemption, the mercy and the grace that you have shown us to the world around us. Thank you, Lord. 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 Can we give the Lord a hand? I know for some of you, you've had an encounter with Jesus, and I'm going to ask you to, to not leave that. Make that, incorporate that into your life. If you would like to tell someone about it, or you would like further ministry, we will have a ministry team up here. So please come forward and just ask them to stand with you and pray with you and tell them about what you experienced, because there's something about bringing it out into the open that makes it more real for you. And Father, I... I just pray that every person would go from here stronger, alive, whole, complete, having received everything you have for them. Amen and amen.